we are the night shift. We alone stand against the vampires, werewolves, and things that go bump in the night. We know the things that prowl the shadows, the monsters that feed on the innocent. We have seen something weird. We control something weird. We create something weird. We study something weird. We are the things that weird things fear. We are the weird. We are the night shift. And we are all that stands between you and the end of all that you know. Welcome, everybody, to a special episode of the Crusader Podcast. Tonight, we have Jason Vey on the line with us. He's here to talk about his game, Night Shift, Veterans of the Supernatural Wars. Thanks for joining us tonight, Jason. Thanks for having me. Mike and I keep wanting to say Veterans of the Psychic Wars. <laughs> and, and, and it actually is a deliberate Deep Purple reference, yes. <laughs> it's an homage. So, in a nutshell, what is this game about, and what's the system that it runs? Because... We should tell our viewers right up that it does not run off the Siege Engine like most Troll Lord games, because this is not a Troll Lord product. Is that right? Correct. It's it's my company, Elf Lair Games. Uh, I would say, though, that it's probably about 70% compatible with, uh, with Troll Lord stuff. You could convert pretty easily. The, the game is kind of um, a toolkit uh, urban fantasy horror role-playing game. The way it came about was... Uh, in summer 2019, I uh, I had done a blog about how to run a Buffy the Vampire Slayer game using original white box Dungeons and Dragons. My friend Tim Brannon, who I've worked with for literal decades since we, we used to work for Eden Studios together um, on the Buffy role-playing game, he sent me a message after reading the blog and said, why aren't we writing this game? Nobody could write this game the way that we can write this game. And at the time, I kind of, this is all, I talk about this in the introduction to the book. I kind of hem-hawed and said, I have too much going on right now. I really can't get involved in another project. But see, Tim knows me, and he knows that by saying that to me, it would put the seed in my head, and I would start tinkering. <laughs> I started tinkering. Right. I started tinkering, and then within like two weeks, I had like the first two chapters, which is the character generation and the rules, almost entirely done. So I contacted him with, with the chapters I had and said, okay, let's do this. Uh, so we put it together. So basically the game is designed to let you play any sort of horror or urban fantasy game you like uh, from, you know, I mean, again, none of this is official. I feel like I have to say that because we don't have the licenses to any of these properties. But if you like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you can do it. If you like the Dresden Files, you can do it. If you like... Lost Girl or Winona Earp or Supernatural or Stephen King or H.P. Lovecraft, whatever, you can do it with this game. Um, the system is called Ogres. It's my house system. It stands for Old School Generic Role-Playing Engine System. Uh, and it's really just there so that I can say the game is powered by Ogres. <laughs> um, it uses three mechanics. It uses a base D20 mechanic. It uses and it's it's OGL, so it uses strength, dex, con, intelligence, wisdom, charisma. So you'll recognize those right away. The ability bonuses are the same as they are in Castles and Crusades. So, you know, 
9 to 12 is 0, 13 to 15 plus 1, etc. Um, so the first mechanic is a d20 mechanic, and you're going to roll a d20. You're going to add a check bonus, which goes up in level as you do. Uh, you're going to add your ability bonus, and you're going to try to get a 20 or better. Uh, every check has a, has a difficulty bonus added to it. So a really easy check, you're going to get plus 10 to the check. So uh, that's the first mechanic. The second mechanic powers all of the class abilities, and that's just a basic percentile check. So it works even for, like, if you're tracking somebody and you have a 50% to track, you roll percentile dice against your 50% to see if you can track them. That's even how spell casting works. Magic users, witches, and warlocks have a percentage chance to cast a spell. As long as they cast the spell successfully, they can keep on casting it all day. If they f- so it's not fire and forget. It's not fire and forget, no. They are limited in how many spells they can prepare uh, per day, and the book explains in theory why that is. But they can continually cast spells over and over again until they miss a percentile check. Um, if they miss a percentile check, then they have to roll on a spell failure table, which can be anything ex- from the spell works anyways to there's a nuclear explosion and everybody dies, which is almost impossible to get, but... Um, so those are those, those are the two mechanics that players need to worry about for DMs, GMs. There's a third mechanic called the rule of two, uh, which I kind of lifted from old school versions of D and D where it's baked into the system, but never really codified. Basically all it means is if there's a situation that the DM doesn't know how to resolve GM, they, throw a die, and they look for a one or two, and on a one or two, something happens. So you basically pick how likely you want it to be. Like, okay, let's say, for example, you're trying to sneak up on somebody, and you don't have uh, the the stealth skill that the survivor would have, the stealth class ability. So you're going to, even if you do, actually, you're going to make a roll to see if you can sneak. If you fail that roll, the DM will throw a die, and on a one or two, a D6, they, they hear you or see you or whatever. So the rule of two is basically just an easy catch-all for the GM to fall back on when they need to make a quick decision hmm. on something. And that's the system in a nutshell right there. So with the rule of two, you would basically, if it was something that was fairly easy, you'd uh, roll a d4. Correct. That gives you... If it was really hard, you'd roll a d20. Right. Uh, and I actually have uh, in the book, I'm looking it up here right now, yes. Um, I outline what the basic odds are on each die so that you can pick real quick. Like a D4 is 50%, a D20 is 10%, a D6 is 30, roughly 33%, you know. So um, I want to ask about the idea of using essentially OGL, old school Dungeons and Dragons style mechanics for different genres. Because while this is not exactly D&D, D&D players will be very familiar with a lot of the processes within this rule set. Whereas I feel a lot of people who create new rule sets, especially rule sets that are outside of the fantasy genre, try to create new groundbreaking quote unquote mechanics that are just kind of reinventing the wheel, a new machine to learn. There's not a whole lot new to learn here it's just reframeworked into a different genre. Really, it is. Um, I've taken a lot of the core of old school gaming um, of 
what we say for legal reasons, the world's most famous role-playing game in its early mm-hmm. editions and, and have codified those rules so that they're not so arcane and difficult to see through. So this is really very compatible with any, you know, original basic advanced version of the rules. Um, mm-hmm. The rules are all pretty much the same. They're there. Even the combat mechanic uses an algorithm that was used on the surface as, as kind of the algorithm to figure out the attack matrices in the old games. Um, so yes, it is very, very going to be very familiar. Uh, and I, and I did that on purpose because you shouldn't have to spend, you know, months figuring out how a game works. I find, and I I want to try to be as respectful as possible when I say this, but I find a lot of new systems that build themselves as innovative are being different just for the sake of being different, and it's not necessary. Um, There's a reason why these systems and these rules are tried and true. They're proven, they work, they're smooth, they're fast. Why try to do something different when you don't need to? There's no need to reinvent the wheel. The wheel rolls just fine the way it is. So that's basically why I fell back on this. Now, that being said, the first source book, which is in Kickstarter right now, um, which is one of the reasons why Carl and I talked about me coming on here, um, it does give you room to kind of make the system your own. I have rules in in the source book for turning it into completely point-based character generation and advancement, so there's no classes and levels anymore. Um, we have rules for point by attributes. We have uh, expanded combat rules. We have all kinds of options in there that will let you make the system your own. Um, but again, all of it is going to be at its base familiar with people who have played, you know, most of the popular game systems out there. Yeah, talking about the algorithm for combat, I noticed that you're using descending armor class. Yes. And the description of adding it to the total with the other attrib- you know, the other modifiers to get 20 or better to be a hit. And I was thinking, yeah, what I had never quite thought of it in that way before, but that is actually a very interesting way of describing it right yeah Without getting bogged down in in the well descending is negatives to you know positives and blah 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 and right i mean is, the the way it works is, is pretty simple you're going to roll your d20 um and actually in this game not everybody adds their strength bonus to melee and not everybody adds their dex bonus to uh, ranged. Only certain character classes get to do that. So that's kind of a difference ah, so there. It, it makes your your chosen ones and your veterans who are your combat characters much more effective that they're the ones that get to add their strength to melee combat. Um, survivors, uh, on the other hand, who are your average people who have survived the supernatural, they get to add their dexterity to ranged combat because they've learned how to attack from the shadows and things like that. So it, it, it kind of gives that little edge to the characters who need it. Um, but going back, it the the combat mechanic is you roll your d20, you add your ability bonus if you are allowed, you add an attack bonus that you get, which again, uh, it goes up as you go in level, and then you add your opponent's armor class, and you're trying to get a 20 or better. Well, I know there are some DMs who like to, you know, 
hide the armor class from the players, at least initially. Say, well, you don't know what their armor class is until you've tried to hit them a few times. Um, So that could be difficult in those instances. And I suppose the DM would have to make the, they would have to add up for you and let you know if you made a 20 or not. Correct. What you do then is you tend, this is how I I did it in my play test. It's how I do it when I run at home. You know, if I'm running the game, you tell me what you rolled and then I add the AC and I tell you if it hits or not. And then eventually if the players are paying attention, they figure it out. Yeah. 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 And that's kind of what happens in our games. Um, where we're using Thaco. It's like, well, I know, you know, I rolled this, I hit an armor class four. It's like, well, you've missed. It's like, okay. And then the next person, I hit armor class two. That hits. It's like, okay, we know it's definitely an armor class two. Might be armor class three. You know? (laughs) And I'll tell you what, interestingly, if you go back and do the math, Thaco works on almost the same algorithm. This is this is a, a very similar to a different way of expressing Thaco. Yeah, it just describes it yeah. differently, and I think better. So how does initiative work in this game, or is there initiative at all? You throw a D10. Just like in Castles and Crusades, you throw a D10, nice. and there's no... High first? Yeah, yeah, high first. Well, I mean, that's what the book says. But again, you know, initiative is, um, really, to my mind, it's it's the most... It's the mechanic that is the least needed to be spelled out. You know, basically, I'm giving you, okay, throw a D10. And then it's up to the DM. Does high go first? Does low go first? Whatever. But yes, in the rules, it's you roll a D10, and it goes from high to low. I've just recently switched to doing logos first because it's easier for me to remember where I was if I'm counting up. <laughs> like I was, I was counting backwards and losing my place, and then I started counting up, and I was like, it's way easier for some reason to remember that four <laughs> goes to five than that four goes to three. I was losing my place all the time. <laughs> I actually use an initiative tracker in my game, so I have like one of those net those magnet board boards that you can put the names on with the numbers. and See, I'm just really lazy, so I do side initiative. <laughs> I think that's 10 times easier, and it's just a D6. And I think that's like a love or hate it thing. But Yeah, yeah I, I'm so indifferent in general in my games for initiative. <laughs> Sometimes I've even said to my players, how do you guys want to handle initiative? Yeah, there's a lot of people that get really granular in initiative when in the end it's just, who goes first? Right. That's and that's really all that matters. Right. And really what's happening is the the combat is one giant melee and the only real reason we have initiative is so that it's not chaos at the table. Mm-hmm. So I think it's easier for us to say that with the more simple games that we play. Uh, I imagine if you were playing Pathfinder or something where like character builds really come into play, initiative is probably much more important. That, but I agree with you in the type of games that we're playing, it, it's really not a big deal. It, it just kind of slow th- slows things down a little bit. Right. And, and that's, that's a very good point. Like I'm reading, um, I'm reading through cyberpunk red right now, and that's a combat system that is very much predicated on who does what and when, and it's a very neat system, but um, initiative is, would definitely be very important in that particular system. Well, yeah, like in old D&D, technically, everyone's supposed to announce their in- actions, then roll initiative. I, you know what? I've tried uh, to I've do that because I really rarely... like it. Yeah, I, I've tried to do that because I really like it, but I, I always forget. And then I'm just like, ah, eh, screw it. And I've rare, almost never come across a table that ever did it that way. Even back in the day, you know, it was, no, you roll, and then when it's your turn, tell me what you do, and that's that. Every year I play in this con game, 
Um, it's like a 12-hour game. It's AD&D, first edition. And this guy plays it 100% by the book. And he does initiative in the way that you just described. And I think you have to like really be on top of it and be really like in the motions of it for it to work. For it to well, work well. Well, it certainly plays magic a little havoc with magic users casting, I would think. That's for sure. It, it does. Yeah, because you might not even have your spell by the time it comes back to you. Yeah, you know? and, and if you're if you're talking about like old school Dungeons and Dragons, like first edition, uh, I don't remember if they did they still use segments in second ed, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't remember. But in, in original either. and first edition spells were cast in segments and each round was divided up into 10 segments. So you would have a spell that would take five segments to cast and you rolled a D 10 for initiative. And then I think you wrote a D six for initiative and it, and it acted on like the yeah. first six segments or whatever, yep. but then it would, and he, he plays with segments too. I don't know how he keeps yeah, it all <laughs> like organized. I, I can't do it. There's no way. Yeah. I think too, he did have segments cause they have weapon speed. First edition did too, but the funny thing about that is that uh, even Gary, he he Gary Gygax had said this years ago on the Troll Lord message forums. He hated Gary Gygax who put them in there. Hated weapon speeds and hated weapon versus armor class. Never used them in his game and said that he re- he always regretted adding those into the into yeah. the game. Um, so I well, just I've always I, loved to. I only bring that up because we just got into a discussion about that on one of the one of the Facebook first edition forums where somebody asked how easy it would be to learn AD and D. And most of us, since it's an AD and D forum, we're like, yeah, it's, it's easy to play. Inevitably you have somebody come in to say fifth edition's way easier. And first edition, you have to deal with weapon speed and weapon versus AC. And then all of us are like, no, you don't. Nobody, <laughs> you don't have to do any of that. Nobody uses yeah. that. Uh, it was like Dragon's Foot with the when 3E first came out. They all came over and did the same thing. I think it's any new edition people are going to... Although 5E is not really new anymore. Well, the new is, I suppose. I've had this argument with people before where I discussed the complexity versus compartmentalization kind of paradox of, of old school versus new school. Mm-hmm. And yes... Everything looked at at once, old school, uh, some old school systems can seem hard, but they're so compartmentalized that it's really easy to drop stuff out and keep what you need. Right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what I expect is the most controversial rule <laughs> in uh, Night Shift. Okay. All D6 damage. Every single weapon does a D6 damage. Yes, it does. And then controversy. It, there has been no controversy for that at all, actually. I love it. I'm we, fine with it. <laughs> yeah, we, ex- we explain it in the book. And really, the fil- well, okay, the core reason behind it is because that's the way it was done in the earliest versions of, of role-playing games. In the earliest versions of D&D, way back in the 70s, all weapons did a D6 damage. And it was that way all the way up through... Um, the the Moldvay basic rules. Um, now you did in the later source books. In I, I want to say it was the Greyhawk source book for for OD and D. They added variable weapon damage, and again in the expert rules they added variable weapon damage back into basic. But yeah, in the oldest school versions of the game, all weapons did D six damage. And philosophically, the reason is that you should be every bit as afraid of a knife in the dark as you are a gunshot in combat. Um, any weapon 
wielded by somebody who knows how to wield it can be equally deadly to a normal person with one strike. So now people can get involved in all kinds of debates about how an axe does more damage because it's heavier than a sword and blah, 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 blah. But in the end, combat is an abstract in these games. And it's really about, can this thing kill you? And the answer is, if it's a weapon, it can kill you. So since we don't have gold pieces and we don't have an, an over, you know, a, a, a reliance on every cent that you own of money, uh, it made sense. You can equip your character as you like, and what weapons you use are kind of just a flavor. Uh, it works the same with supernatural attacks in the game, in fact. You don't stake a vampire by making a called shot and saying, I'm trying to stake the vampire. You stake the vampire by reducing it to zero hit points and having the supernatural attacks ability, which symbolizes the fact that you know how to fight a vampire. So it, it just it really covers the whole abstraction of combat in a way that lets you flavor it the way you want to flavor it. Yeah, I, I like D6 damage because it it kind of frees people up to do a lot of customization that isn't really available if you know, there's a clear reason why you should be using that sword over this sword or that sword over a mace or, or whatever. Right. Um, it, it lets you kind of just create what you want and, and the rules are just what the rules are. Yeah, absolutely. But if everything is 1d6 of damage, if you've got like 18 hit points, then, you know, it's... Well, again, though, keep in mind that we're talking about an abstract. Getting quote-unquote hit in combat doesn't necessarily mean that you actually get stabbed or shot or smacked by a weapon. It could mean that you dove out of the way at just the last minute and maybe got a graze on the arm. And hit points represent you getting better at what you do as you go up in levels. Right, right. But I guess my point being is, no matter what you roll on that dagger, you're not going to kill me with the first hit. No, because I've gotten that good by the time I'm third level yeah. or whatever yeah yeah or have that much stake in the narrative i mean there's there's multiple ways to view this concept of hit points and you know one of those ways is just it's your staying power in this story that's being unfolded exactly it's it's your 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 hero factor it's your um it's the the main character plot immunity that we all like in star wars we all like to make jokes about how the stormtroopers couldn't hit the broadside of a barn but the truth of the matter is, if you watch the beginning of A New Hope, they wipe out that entire rebel ship in like 10 minutes flat. It's just the main characters that can't be hit by stormtroopers. So it's it's kind of that mm-hmm. idea. Only NPCs. Oh, only NPCs, <laughs> yes. NPCs have two hit points, and they're lucky to have them. <laughs> and they were thankful. And they were thankful. Because you're always thankful. <laughs> Well, I've got a question for you. Um, When I was reading the main rules for Night Shift, um, the section about choosing your character race, Mm -hmm. where you can either decide to be human or you can be a supernatural creature. Yes. Um, At one point, you say, you know, whatever type of supernatural you choose, you may not be undead. Uh, What was the thought process or, you know, reasoning when you ruled that a supernatural being could not be undead? and your distinction of living vampires as opposed to your standard, quote-unquote, undead ones? You know, this is going to be a terrible answer, but I honestly cannot remember what my train of thought was when I wrote that. Morbius. Um, and in the, in the uh, again, in the companion, which we're kickstarting now, 
we have specific supernatural species. We've we've changed to 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 go along with the current uh, the current movement towards getting away from the word race. We've changed them to species because really, what you're playing are different species. You're not a human being. You're a different species of creature. Um, mm-hmm. So, but we do have uh, specific species of creatures in the in the source book. We have celestials. Driven, which are uh, actually a type of undead that comes back to have a laser focus on pursuing a single goal that was left undone when they were when they were sort of a revenant. Yeah, sort of a revenant. Um, It can be anything from the crow to Jason Voorhees. Really, Uh, we have ghouls. We have immortals, which can be anything from your you know wandering warriors that have to fight to the last to nephilim to you know. Uh, enlightened mm-hmm. beings from the ancient lost continent of Thule, you know. Um, then we have infernals, lycanthropes, and vampires. So we have very specific supernatural species, uh, which were built off of, if you go to the monster chapter in Night Shift, the, the core rules, there's mm-hmm. guidelines for picking one of the monsters and turning it into a, a specific player character, right? Yeah these were kind of built off of those guidelines to give you examples for specific types of creatures you can play. So, but again, I know that's not satisfactory, but I, I honestly <laughs> can't remember why, why I said you shouldn't be an undead and I have specific undead creatures in the night companion. So I, I have a theory to me. The, the, the big problem with being an undead creature in a game like this is you have so many magical abilities and spells that affect undead. So if you're an undead player character, can you be affected by turn undead or locate undead or command undead? Oh, that would be terrible if you had to be turned when your friend did the spell. <laughs> yeah. like, no, no, not you. Sorry. <laughs> and we have and we do have a character class in there, the Theosophist, whose entire shtick is that they affect undead. So mm-hmm. Uh, sure, I mean, sure like- Carl, we'll go with that. That is that is exactly what I was thinking when I wrote those rules. You got it right. You nailed it right on the head. Totally not rule related at all. Um, but I got to say, one of my favorite things about this is just the way it's laid out. One, I love the black and white art, like the heavy line art. I'm a big fan of that. And I'm a big sucker for border art, too. Thank you. Uh, I love it. See, I didn't like the decorative border. And it's solely because sometimes it obscures bits of the text. It does. And I uh, I did the layout on this, and I was still learning at the time. And uh, uh, you're not the first one to point that out, that, that in the middle there's those splotches, which is on entirely on me. I have cleaned that up. The Night Companion uses the same border art, but all of those splotches in the middle are gone. So it will it, yeah, it will not obscure the test the text now, this time. Hold on a second. There's splatters of blood. Okay. So <laughs> if you have blood splatter on a book, it's going to inevitably hit wait, something. Wait a second, wait a second. Let's this keep is, this realistic. This is black and white like psycho. Those are those are How do you know it's blood? No, these are these are these this is black and white like psycho. Those are splotches of chocolate syrup. Chocolate. Yeah, yes. pure Bosco. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I was defending you on that one, but if you want to argue with me, then you know what? I hate the borders now. I uh, also really like the art. I love black and white art. I miss black and white art in a lot of other uh, books. Um, 
I also really like that the chosen one looks super familiar. <laughs> you picked I up like, on that, like... did you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what Carl, are you talking about? I couldn't find I couldn't find a picture of a guy with a big chin because that would have been the second choice. <laughs> Groovy. <laughs> I'll let people look at that art and make up their own mind on who that might be. <laughs> and actually, uh, I probably shouldn't admit this because people are going to think I'm cheap. And actually, I was. Uh, but it was out of necessity because I just didn't have the budget. All of the art in there is stock art that I bought from DriveThruRPG. Hey, a lot of people do that. Hey, small publisher. Nothing wrong with that. Now, the cover, the cover art I put together myself from a number of different photo elements, some of which I purchased, some of which were public domain. I put that all together myself. But inside the book, yeah, it's all it's all stuff. The border I found somewhere was completely free. Somebody had made it and put it up there and said, you can use this for your commercial purposes. Just credit me. And so I credited the author, the creator and it's there. Um now the the companion I have I now have a little bit more money. Not a <laughs> lot, but a little bit. And I did um hire Bradley McDevitt, who does a lot of work for Dungeon Crawl Classics, to do artwork for all of the new classes and all of the new species. So, And he's sent me a couple pieces uh, over the past couple days, just not finished, but concept sketches, and they're crazy cool. I'm going to be sharing some of them on the Kickstarter soon. I'm really excited about what he's doing with it. He's so. a really nice guy, too. I, I met him at a con one time. He's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Brad's awesome. He's a, he's a great guy. Me and him have been, he and I, listen to my grammar, <laughs> I'm a writer. He he and I have um, been talking about working together for a long, long time. And this was the first time that there was the opportunity and I had the money to pay him to do it. So uh, it came together and I'm, I'm really excited about it. If we hit a high enough stretch goal, I'm going to hire him to do more art. We'll see how it goes. So... Um... Why don't we go ahead and talk a little bit about the Kickstarter and the supplement for Night Shift that is being Kickstarted now? Um, it's it's the first source book uh, for for the game. Um, it offers four new character classes, which are the Divine Warrior, um, which would kind of be like a modern day demon hunter, paladin, somebody who works for the Catholic Church and hunts monsters, that sort of person, uh, a mystic martial artist character. Uh, a psychic gunslinger and the spirit rider. Now the spirit rider is somebody who has a direct connection to the spiritual essence of a specific geographic region. Um, And they get enhanced magical abilities because of their connection to the land. So those are the four character classes. Um, We have rules for the supernatural species that I already listed out. It's the celestials, driven ghouls, immortals, infernals, lycanthropes, and vampires. Um, I have options for generating ability scores. Now, one thing actually that we didn't talk about yet, one thing that um, a lot of people seem to like about Night Shift that we think does make it kind of unique is that we have three play levels in a lot of the systems in there. You can have what we call realistic, which is your normal play level, or gritty or cinematic. And um, the three terms are pretty self-explanatory, but you don't have to pick one overall. Like you could have gritty damage with cinematic healing with, you know, um, normal exorcism rules. And you can really use that to build the level of difficulty that you want in your game. 
Um, I have options for normal, gritty, and cinematic games for attribute generation in the in the companion. Um, we have rules to convert the game from class and level to entirely point by. Uh, I have a new alignment system in there, which is focused on, instead of just law and chaos, we have good, evil, light, and dark in there. Um, I have guidelines. If you don't like the three mechanic system, there's guidelines in there to convert it over to an entirely unified mechanic, either D20 or percentile based, whichever you like. There's enhanced combat rules. Uh, there's more arcane powers, more magic spells, uh, more GM advice, dozens of new monsters. Uh, and that's it. Uh, right now, um, we're going to have, uh, hopefully we're going to have some new night worlds. We're going to have some new night spots in there. I'm still kind of planning those ones out. The book is entirely done except for those little bits and bobs to be added on, but that's what we got for, for the companion right now. It really, it's, it, it's a huge book of options. That's going to kind of blow the doors off of the game. And it looks like you're coming up on your first stretch goal too. We are, yeah, we are, uh, well, it's not going to matter by the time this airs, but as of this moment, we're about 53 bucks away from our first stretch goal. So so is there any particular stretch goal that you've got mapped out that you are especially hoping to reach? It's like, you know, if I can, if yes. I can just get this stretch goal, this one's my favorite. <laughs> and I suspect you asked that because you know which one I'm going to say. Um <laughs> It's it's the sixty five hundred dollar stretch goal. If we make it there, we are going to do uh, print GM screens for the game. I've already spoken to a printer. Uh, I'm waiting on the formal quote for them, but uh, the 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 informal quote that they gave me was very affordable. Um, they're going to be on chipboard, like hardcover stock, like hardcover book stock. Um, and uh, I'm really excited. the 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 artwork for the outside of the GM screens is is posted in the kickstarter so you can see them but i really want to get to that level because to me it feels like the game's really complete once you can say i got gm screens mm -hmm. um i have the gm screen inserts right now on drive through rpg uh so the inside of the gm screens will pretty much be the same as the ones on drive through rpg so people can go there and look at the preview to see what the insides are going to look the exterior is going to be entirely different um because the drive through rpg screens they're on four cards, so you kind of have to have four different pieces of artwork. Mm -hmm. Doing a, a print screen will allow me to have the one panoramic piece of artwork all the way across the outside. Uh, and I really kind of dig what we've come up with for that, that exterior art. Um, and I'm just really excited about the potential to do the GM screen, so I'm really hoping that we get there. Uh, we're, we're also, actually, I should mention, we're doing some crossovers with Troll Lord with this because uh, Steve Chenault is an awesome human being. Um, and right now we're running a backer challenge through the weekend. Uh, if we reach the $4,000 stretch goal by the end of the weekend, every backer at the $60 and up level is going to get, uh, well, actually this is not going to matter by the time this airs. It might. I'm going to, I'm going to start working on this as soon as possible. Hello listeners. This is your editor, Carl. Unfortunately, I was not able to get this out in time. Thank you for listening back to the show. Okay. Um, the, 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 but this is an example of the type of things we're doing anyways, even if it doesn't make it up. Backers at the $60 and up level are going to get a free PDF of the Amazing Adventures RPG. And if we reach the $5,000 stretch goal, which is a new Night World by Tim, 
uh, everybody's all at the $60 and up level is also going to get a free PDF of amazing adventures, five E. Awesome. So, uh, and there's probably going to be some more crossovers as we, as we get on, we still have at this point, we still have, uh, about three weeks to go on the Kickstarter. So, yeah, so this doesn't have to go into the podcast, but I was thinking about you the other day, as creepy as that sounds. Uh, <laughs> no, I went creepy and, would be, I was looking at you the other day. That's that would be much more creepy. Um, I saw, uh, God, what was it called? Um, Jungle Cruise, the movie. Oh, for, yeah. I, I, I want to see that because it really, I, I saw the previews and I was like, that's totally an amazing yeah, adventure. It was, it, was, yeah. it was really good. I'm, I like everything though, so... Don't take my word for it, but I gave it an eight out of ten all day. Yep. I, I and I think you should totally put that in the uh, in the podcast. The bit about you thinking about me because I get that a lot. <laughs> Great, all three of our uh, all three of our people will think I'm a creeper, which is fine. Oh, that's all right. We already thought you were a creeper, <laughs> but you're our creeper. <laughs> I don't even know what movie he was talking about. I couldn't hear it. Jungle, <laughs> Jungle, Jungle Cruise, Jungle Cruise with the Rock. I'll I see anything with the rock in it. I, I love the rock. I want to see that. You no, should I see it. See that. I can see that being a pulp movie. It's just the last thing that I could. I was grasping at. What movie recently was he talking about? Enola Holmes, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> Interestingly enough, that too could be an amazing adventures movie. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I, I should actually, actually, since we're talking about amazing adventures and the fact that we're giving away the PDFs, I should point out to the people that are listening, if you like and make amazing adventures, you will like night shift. Mm-hmm. Um, the inventor character class is going to look staggeringly familiar to you. <laughs> if you, if you have read amazing adventures, cause I basically just lifted the gadgeteer from amazing adventures and dropped it into night shift. Um, so it, it, it's, it's going to look very familiar and you're, I think you're going to really like it. If you like amazing adventures, you'll like night shift. And again, I think once you get into it, the game is probably about 70% compatible with castles and crusades. So the learning curve should be very low. You should be up and running really quick. Is there anything else about night shift that we've not covered that you definitely want to get on the podcast? Wait, wait, wait. Everybody always says we're too easy on these people. So I'm going to ask him a hard question. Oh, okay. Go for it. What makes night shift different than any other urban fantasy game? Like nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be completely honest. honest Again, I just, I just, I just sat here and told you how reinventing the wheel is not necessary. All I can do is make the games that I love to play and night shift uses these rules and these systems and these concepts in a way that I love them uh, in a way that Tim and I are both very passionate about. Um, I I guess really what kind of sets it apart is that, the DNA of Tim and me as game designers is all over it. So if you're familiar with our work, you'll love it. If you're not familiar with our work, give it a try. I hope you'll love it. Um, it's, it's, I'm not going to sit here and claim that I did anything innovative or outstanding or special with it because that, that would be a lie. And honestly, I think most game designers who claim that they've done something new and different, truly new and different are, not being entirely honest sometimes with themselves they're not being honest but that's all i can say is that i make the games i want to play i make the games that i love and people seem to respond to that um i've gotten positive feedback from the stuff that i've done and uh 
that's it. So what sets it apart is the fact that it's a game that I love. Nice. That's a really, that's a great answer. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's a really good answer. Well, one of the strengths I think that the core rule book has particularly is not the rules so much as the fact that you have so many different settings that you can drop these things into. Um, You know, you've got Generation Hex, you've got the Veterans of the Supernatural Wars, um, all these different, you know, possible settings that you have given players and GMs to, you know, use the rules in. And like you said, you know, at this point, a lot of games, whether, you know, it's meant or not, they tend to be a bit derivative. And I think the settings are truly what can set rule systems apart. Yeah, I agree. And if you're going to be derivative with a setting and let's, let's, I mean, let's be honest, at least a few of the settings in there are derivative. You kind of have to own it. Mm-hmm. Generation Hex, for example, is about magical kids at a magical high school. We own that for what it is, you know. Um, uh, the Nocturnum verse is actually based on a long-running campaign that I've been I've been running for 20 years, actually, that uh, was originally run in the Unisystem in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer RPG, but it, it blends elements of Buffy and... Uh, the Cthulhu mythos, and it's a kitchen sink. Anything I can think of, I have grabbed every horror RPG you can imagine and just dumped crap into the Nocturnum verse and told my players, don't think too hard about it. Um, but yeah, you kind of have to own that. And and I really can't take credit for the idea of having multiple settings, sample settings in there, because we're far from the first people to do that. Um, again, Tim and I met working for Eden Studios, and they were well known for doing that, and they're all Flesh Must Be Eaten books. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they call them Dead Worlds. So this is kind of our uh, tip of the hat to them, calling ours Night Worlds. Um, and actually, the size and format of the book is also kind of a tip of the hat to to that legacy to us having met George who runs Eden is also a great, great guy. He really kind of took me under his wing when I first started game design, uh, years and years ago, I first started writing for palladium books, left them, um, under less than ideal circumstances. I was going to quit gaming at the time or quit designing at the time. And George kind of stepped in and, and took me under his wing, uh, so uh, a lot of this is kind of a love letter to where Tim and I came from as game designers together. So uh, all of that is a long-winded way of saying that I agree with you that the multiple settings are a very cool thing. We just can't take credit for coming up with the idea. Well, I think it kind of lends to what you said in the beginning where it's uh, this game is a toolkit. You know, it's, it's the pieces are there for you to pick up and, and make it your own. Very much. And I'm a, and I'm a big fan of that. I mean, having... Having core settings in a game is cool, but I think that the rules should be able to be easily divorced from those settings because um, I use this analogy way too often. It's kind of like when you play Star Wars during the Rebellion era. It does not matter how cool your characters are or what they can do or how big the galaxy is or all the adventures out there that you can have. In the end, Luke Skywalker gets to face off against Darth Vader and redeem him at the death of the emperor on the Death Star. There's nothing you can, unless your GM is willing to throw cannon out the window. 
And that's kind of what you get. There's meta plot that goes hand in hand with settings that are baked into a system. So I like to kind of just give some people the bones to work with. Or you have players, the first thing they want to do in your Star Wars game is they want to find Luke Skywalker and blow his head off. Right, <laughs> right. So they can be the ones to kill yeah, Darth Vader. Yeah, those guys. Yeah. And it's always they want to kill Darth Vader. They don't want to. No, run no. Because... They want to kill him and check his spleen for emeralds. Gamers are so ultra violent that it's like they watch Clockwork Orange and they're like, that's nothing compared to what we did mm. last week. Too true. All right, Carl, now, now you can ask him if there's anything. <laughs> <laughs> not to. I'm not to. Um, it's like, no, no, the moment is gone now. <laughs> uh, too late. No, um, so is there anything specific about Night Shift that we've not talked about that you would like to get out there to our listeners? Um, I'm not sure that there's anything specific that we haven't covered. I think we've really gone gone over it pretty well. Just I really hope that people will take a look at the at the Kickstarter. Um, it's we have uh, uh, Elflare Games has a Facebook group, uh, which you can head to to find the uh, URL for the Kickstarter. It's just facebook.com slash groups slash Elflare Games. How long is it running? Really easy. The Kickstarter is, uh, right now we have about three weeks left on it. Uh, we funded it in a day. Um, I should also mention, if you're still on the fence, right now the core rules have a five-star overall rating on, on DriveThruRPG. So um, if that means anything to you, people are responding positively to it. So um, if you don't have the core game, it's available now, or you can actually get it on the Kickstarter, which is going to help me push the Kickstarter higher in the end. You also, uh, you have a quick start on drive through. If you want to take a look at night shift and, uh, then decide to purchase it through the Kickstarter, you can go and get the quick start. Yes, we do. Uh, and the quick start is also linked from the, from the Kickstarter. So you can get it in there too. So I looked at another one of your games, uh, also an elf layer game. Also, I believe powered by the ogres, uh, uh, uh swordsman and spell slingers, which is, Spellcraft and sword. What did play. I just say? <laughs> you said swordsman. What am and I looking at? Yes. Which is a cool. Oh, no, that is no, actually no, a pretty no. cool title, there, Carl. Nope. Nope. Hold on. Um, Let me retake that. I apologize. That's okay. Volume one. I believe volume one or the character generation chapter of spellcraft and swords play might have been called swordsman and spell yeah, slingers. It, it has to been. be because I have this open and I read that off of the page. Book one. <laughs> yeah, you might have so years and years <laughs> okay. years and years and years and years ago. I uh, do you have did you buy it from drive through RPG or did you get it I no I got it I got the um sorry I have the basic game that I downloaded and looked at from drive through. Okay. And it's okay. Spe- spellcraft okay. and swordplay. The file's called spellcraft and swordplay. The basic game front splash page, spellcraft and swordplay by Jason Vay. Awesome. Awesome. And then when I scroll down, book one is called swordsman and built the characters. Yeah. <laughs> like, like men and magic. Yeah. That's the character. <laughs> it's done. It's right. Exactly. Like men and magic. Um, no, first of all, spellcraft and swordplay is not powered by ogres. Okay. That is powered by, that's powered by orcs. Got it. <laughs> um, orcs are not orcs. as good as ogres. <laughs> no, orcs actually stands for uh, optimized core role playing system. That was my original house system, and that grew out of uh, spellcraft and swordplay. I did back in 2010, mm-hmm. um, and I did it as a lark. 
Um, I was a bunch of us on the OD&D message boards were discussing, and they still discuss it to this day. If you look at the original D&D books uh, from back in the 70s, the, the white box or brown box, they talk about how you're supposed to use chain mail mm-hmm. for combat, but he never really gets into it. Mm-hmm. So that's a debate that's been going on for years. How was it supposed to be done? And it's now known that Gary Gygax never did it. He always used the alternate combat system. But I started making notes to figure out how would it work mm-hmm. if you were going to use chain mail for combat. And again, this is the case where I get those brain worms and I start tinkering. And then before I know it, I've written a game. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. So I figured, well, I, I did all this work. I might as well have not done it for nothing. So I did a sloppy layout in Microsoft Word um, with public domain art. And actually, it looks shockingly good for having done it in Microsoft Word with public domain art. Um but at the time, I did not know what I was doing as far as layout and graphic design and all that. That was a decade ago. Um, and I put it up on RPG, and it's been there ever since. And it was my first house system. And when, it, when I first put it out, it was really popular. I sold like 500 copies in six months of it. I was so lazy at the time that I just wasn't about doing my own business. So I let it go, and it lapsed, and I lost all of my momentum. <laughs> And with Night Shift, I'm kind of starting over from scratch. Um, I am working on a revised version of the Orcs system, which is going to eventually debut as, as Spellcraft and Swordplay 2nd Edition. But that's that's way down the line from now. Yeah. Well, my, my interest in it was about that, uh, taking the Chainmail Combat and applying it to an old-school RPG experience. Um, that is something that um, on uh, another show, one of the hosts, Crispy, uh, has tried and attempted and looked at and tried to find a way. So I want to uh, put, push this on to Crispy and, and, and maybe uh, uh, see if he'll uh, play it with us. <laughs> I, for what it's worth, I have been using those rules to run a game set in the Hyborian Age and mm-hmm. Robert E. Howard's Hyborian Age for probably since the game came out. So it's, it's probably going on a decade. Um, and you know, a lot of the changes and house rules that we made are going to find their way into the second edition, but I can vouch from a decade of play that yes, it works. So. Awesome. I just wanted to bring it up because it looks cool to me and I want to try uh, uh, some old school fantasy gaming with chainmail combat. And you really did a good job on this layout uh, using the tools you had. There's, there's images in the middle of the screen and text around it and stuff. I mean, I can't do that in word. Yeah, it's it. I, I look at it today, and even today, I'm like, I know it was done from Word, so I can see it, and now you guys will. But I'm like, <laughs> it really doesn't look all that bad for what I had at the time. So, I mean, Word is a terrible program to work with <laughs> for design because, I mean, in the end, it's not made for that. So, anyone right. being able to do anything using Word is like, wow. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a I mean it's it's a powerful word processing program, but yeah, it's I mean, uh, um, spellcraft and swordplay has a very basic layout because that's what you can do effectively with Word. Oh man, I got so scared that I had opened someone else's game and started talking about it. <laughs> that's not mine. Why are you pushing somebody else's? So like, art. I also actually I have a third house system called CD8. Which is also, I have a game on Drive Through RPG called Chutzpah, mm-hmm. a certain Je ne sais quoi. 
Um, which there's, and I, and I understand, I've come to understand since then that a couple other people have done this as well, but there's a meme going around, uh, that says basically, I want somebody to create a game whose ability scores are, um, oh, I don't remember what they are now, but it's like chutzpah, uh, uh, cut of my jib, a certain je ne sais quoi, uh, and things like that. Uh, and my wife went, I want you to design that game. <laughs> So I did. Um, chutzpah, as it stands, is very, it's a, it's a powerful system. And I, I really think that it can handle just about anything you want. But it's also very short and very self-effacing and tongue-in-cheek. Um, it makes fun of me. It makes fun of the reader. Um, I, I built it just to be fun to, fun to read as well as fun to play. But it's your basic throw a fistful of D8s and look for successes, or as I call them, fist bumps. Yeah. Um, you basically add your attribute and your skill together. You make a dice pool. You throw a bunch of D8s because I just picked D8s because nobody does dice pools of D8s. Uh, and you look for and you look for successes. It's it's the simple it's as simple as that. So it's fun. I I, I recommend that one for anybody who's looking for a beer and pretzels game. That's something a little different. And I'm going to be taking another again. I'm going to be taking a little more serious approach to that with a game in the in the future down the road that I have some notes done for so awesome well thanks jason for coming on the show again we always like having you on here and we wish you luck on your kickstarter and we really hope that it's successful and you get through those stretch goals thank you thank you very much so is that out jesse jesse you gotta say bye man (laughs) oh shoot (laughs) you always do this look this is only like my second podcast or how many this is like 20 I'm still new at this, okay? Uh, well, that's all for tonight. Thanks for being with us, listeners. Thanks for being with us, listeners. Um, I don't know. What, what, what is night. even happening right now? Bye. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Anybody, anybody that's listening, we really haven't all been drinking tonight. Just me. Well, maybe some of you haven't, but... <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night. And we're out. Did you say Briark? <laughs> <laughs> I will not stand with no Briark. <laughs> Briark. <laughs> <laughs>
That, that just should cover these <laughs> goodbyes and just drop them in, you know, as needed. I really, I think what you should do when you edit this together is put all of those goodbyes in a string. <laughs> just, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.